just as I started this, your name is Jake Katevsky. Nice. <laughs> we got there. What nationality is that? Macedonian. Macedonian. Yeah. Right. Both your parents Maso? Yeah, both my parents. Uh, dad was born here, mum was born over there, but all my grandparents emigrated um, in about the 50s, 60s, off the top of my head. That would have been a hard time. Yeah. Um, dad's dad came over by himself at, I want to say, 21. Jesus um, and worked for a couple of years on his own to bring over his wife and my uncle. And they had my dad here, but he also worked to bring over all but one of his siblings, and he was one of six. So wait, did he meet uh, your mum here? Sorry, my dad met mum here. My dad's okay. dad moved over to work. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but mum and dad met here. And funnily enough, dad's dad and mum's dad actually knew each other back in the villages <laughs> um, back in Macedonia all those years ago. They worked on a, a farm together or something off the top of my head. I can't remember. But um, yeah, emigrated here. Um, and I'm a first-generation scientist. No one from the family's done anything in science. No one from the family, immediate family of my mum, my dad, um, got to year 12 before I did. So I'm the first one going through. So it's kind of a daunting experience trying to learn how to be a scientist and what to do and all those things. Um, Isn't it a crazy thing to be the first of your family to actually want to try? I find... if especially with myself because as you know um i want to go back and finish my studies in psychology when i first adventured out into psychology and i was talking about it with my parents they were all like no no no, don't do that you're, you're too old because by the time i decided to do it i think i might have been around 27 or something when i decided 26 they basically said no nah, it's too late you're too too old just get a job kind of thing, get a good job, maybe get a certificate behind you yep. kind of thing. They thought it was kind of too risky. Yep. Did you kind of get the same backlash? Not really. Um, I did a degree right out of year 12. I actually oh, have right. a genetics degree at La Trobe. Um, and then I didn't do anything with it. So I, got, <laughs> I, got, I got the bachelor and I decided I actually don't really like genetics that much. And I almost fell into the hospitality trap again. And then... I thought, shit, around the same age, 25, 26, I reckon I was. Maybe a little bit earlier. No, you know what? I actually want to go back and do paleontology. And I'm here with two degrees, an honours degree, and now in the, I guess, the middle of a PhD. Did genetics help you at all in paleontology? There's been a bit. So I did, it was kind of focused on genetics, but I did a bit of zoology as well. Um, and I guess there's a few facets of zoology that include, like, animal structure, animal behavior, animal function. The the key part that helps is animal structure and morphology, so what bones look like. Um, but, you know, if you can understand what a bone looks like and then what the animal's doing with that bone, you can kind of... It helps you put together a story when you're looking at an extinct animal where only you have bones. So it, it, for me, I feel like it helps me think of these things as animals that are no longer here rather than a skeleton. So specific animals in zoology would be like the crocodiles and the emus and stuff. Anything. Were you working out of a zoo when you were doing it or? No, so I just, it was just an undergraduate degree. I was working at a pokies pub <laughs> um, to, you know, just have money, earn a bit of cash, get some work experience. And that was just on the weekends while I studied Monday to Friday. No dead things there, just people that have passed out that look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't go into detail. Um, yeah, no, just... 
just worked there to support the degree and eventually after I finished my degree moved out of home and you know when you need to start paying rent and bills and food the uh you almost fall into a trap of well I'm earning money I may as well keep earning money I don't love what I'm doing but it's yeah. keeping me afloat there's actually um a couple people at my work where I work right now one of them he was probably halfway through his law degree and he stopped just because the money and there's a few people like that in my industry where I work right now where they're like oh the money's good the money's good and then 10 years will pass by and it's kind of like you could have been graduated by now and I always have that thought in my head of if I don't do something now 10 years from now I'm going to wish I did it 10 years ago yeah and I think I sort of had a revelation at the same stage where I'm like I'm falling into this trap. I don't like this line of work. Like it's, I'm here because I'm earning money. Mm. I, I I want to do something I care about. So there was there was kind of a point that contributed. There was a mix of factors that made me decide. You know, what, I actually want to go back and do this. I want to chase that passion. You know, I, it's hard to meet a kid or someone who, as a kid, didn't want to be a paleontologist. So many people thought, yeah, oh, dinosaurs are great. I want to be a paleontologist. And you'd say the word and. So many people can't pronounce it or spell it. It's like every kid at some stage, I believe, was obsessed with dinosaurs. Whether it's a week, a month, if me, like if you're like me and you never grew out of it, it's just always something everyone considered. It's one of those jobs like astronaut, policeman, firefighter, firefighter, paleontologist. I feel like it's one of those jobs that is always the the fantasy for a kid, but no one ever actually chases up with it, except for those rare few. So is that what it was for you? Just that childhood dream that never left? Yeah, that's... Uh, it's. Do you want the long or the short version? Hey, we got time, man. We got time, all right. Uh, for me, I had no chance because the first toy I was given as a newborn was a big plushy dinosaur. <laughs> so it kind of started early, but the, the real gripping factor, and I hear it's a similar story for many paleos of my generation, Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. That movie just... It did a lot. It was for its time pretty well grounded pretty scientifically accurate and it just enthralled me i think i watched it through for the first time about four or five and it just gripped me but the the big the two big factors i guess were sam neil as alan grant um and he's just a regular you know he's just a scientist who gets thrust into this situation he's not an action hero uh, i've been reading his biography recently and you know he's just his character is a random dude in this situation but he's also quite intelligent about what the situation is in and just you know that scene where the t-rex bursts through the gate attacks the cars roars i'm like that is that's the coolest thing ever i'm going to base my life on that and so that's kind of what started the the obsession and the passion was jurassic park still my favorite movie i mean i watch the movie i don't know how many times a year i read the book once a year and i guess the two kind of mainstreams in it genetics and paleontology and growing up I always wanted to be a paleontologist, but I was under the impression that it's not a high-earning field, which is a correct impression. There's not a lot of work demand. I mean, it's not a, it's it's an important field, but it's not curing cancer or you know, helping with disease or sickness or you know, looking at climate change. These are real important things. I still think it's vital because, I mean, we're looking at a past environment, a hotter world when we look at dinosaurs mainly. But I was very conscious of a, a career that would earn money. So I went into the genetic stream, did the entire degree, realised I didn't like it. And yeah, two years later, during just being um, 
down, not liking my job, you know, just having to earn money. Picked up the book, read it again. I Googled paleontology in Australia. Um, and that led me to Jeff Stilwell, who was the associate professor at Monash University in the Earth Science Department. And he was a paleontologist. And I contacted Jeff. I said, look, here's what I've done. I don't have the best marks in my degree. I've got the degree. What can I do? Ended up speaking with Monash and I did a second bachelor, um, Bachelor of Science, I think it was. But I had credit from the previous degree. So instead of doing the 24 units across three years, I only had to do nine, which is great because I could still work and earn rent, commute from the other side of the city because I live in the north and Monash is in the east. So I'd only have to commute one or two days a week, do all the lectures at home and get through the degree. Managed to get through the degree, did an honours year with Jeff where I studied a large sauropod from Morocco that Jeff um, has. And through that, I got to meet who's now my supervisor, Steve Poropat. I know I'm doing a lot of name dropping for people who don't know paleontologists, but Steve is possibly one of the best dinosaur paleontologists in Australia, if not the world. He's incredibly thorough. Um, I met him during the undergrad. He gave a guest talk for first year earth science and was just instantly, that's the guy I want to be like. And so, yeah, he helped me out with it because Steve's specialty is sauropods and it's his passion. And then he asked me if I wanted to do a PhD. And by this point, I'm 27, I think I was. Yeah, 27. He asked if I wanted to do a PhD. I'm like, mate, you know, I want to earn money and have a job. Um, I'm kind of sick of casual work. I want to have a stable nine to five. And, you know, I'm not sure I could do another three years of unpaid study. And then he's like, well, you know, you can get a scholarship for a PhD. And here we are. Here we are a year and a bit later. Um, Steve offered me a project looking at the theropods, so all the meat-eating dinosaurs that have ever been found from Victoria. I'm guessing from quick looks I've had at the museum, there's at least 200 individual bones and only 30-something of them ever been properly described. 40, 44 or so. Um, So it's a bit of slog work in just getting all this material, trying to figure out what they are. Um, but here we are a year and a half later and doing what I love and couldn't see myself doing anything else, honestly. That's really good to hear, man. When someone's chasing their dreams, even if there's a risk to it, I mean, everything has risks. Mm-hmm. You get in the car, there's a risk. You get in a plane, there's a risk. Everything has a risk. Yeah. Uh, people eat junk food every day and that's a future risk, definitely. Yeah. But they still do it. Well, that's it. And I mean, to me, I was I've always valued working a job that you love. I mm. mean, if you're going to be stuck in something for life, you may as well do something you enjoy. Mm. And again, one of the funny things Steve said to me when I was talking about getting into paleontology, he said, be prepared for low job security and low pay. I'm like, mate, I'm in hospitality. <laughs> like, I'm used to this. Um, and, and that was never a deterrent for me. It's, mm. I've seen people struggle in the field. I've seen people prosper. It, sometimes it chalks down to time and place other times people are just incredible at what they do that they get offers like steve when i started the phd he was um he'd gone back to do a teaching degree because kind of work had dried up for him in in melbourne he just started a family and then he was approached by someone in um at Curtin university in western australia he's now got a three-year postdoctorate he's looking at extreme preservation of fossils it's just like snapped him up because they wanted specifically him for all the great work he's done mm. So it's just, yeah, there, there are ways to make it work if you're passionate enough, I feel. You're talking about dinosaurs found in Victoria, Australia. Were dinosaurs ever regionally 
discriminative in terms of where you would find certain dinosaurs. What do you mean? Like type, like a species? Yeah, so let's just say you go to Australia, you see Australians, go to England, you see English gotcha. people. Yeah. Yeah, so dinosaurs originated back when all the continents were together yeah. in Pangaea. Yeah. Yeah. That's in the Triassic. Mm. And that's how they were able to disperse throughout the entire mm. continent. At that stage, they're probably going to look fairly similar to each other. As the continents rift apart, we start to get separation. Um, so you get Laurasia in the north, which is North America, Europe, Asia. And you get Gondwana in the South, Africa, South America, Australia, Antarctica, and also India. India eventually going north and joint, colliding with Asia. Um, you start to see a bit of regionalism there. Things in the north look more like each other. Things in the south look more like each other. And eventually those rift apart too. And eventually in the, in the individual continents, you get individual animals. Mm. Um, but they still look broadly similar because they, there were still ways to connect. I mean, there's theories of land bridges, you know, Roots island hopping has been proposed where animals would just, you know, raft to islands and eventually get to another continent. There's so many theories on how they were able to look like each other, but we do get our own unique animals mm. that you won't get anywhere else in the world. I asked that question because, say, we're in Australia, you've got emus. Yep. You probably won't find emus in certain other countries, mm-hmm. but emus are birds, so they probably are descendants from dinosaurs. Yep, definitely are. That's why I wonder, well, maybe they were related to a dinosaur that was specific to this country and not those other regions. Look, birds are a whole other thing. They've been grouped into their own, I guess, category, major group group now because they've been around for so long. There are birds across the world that are still similar to emus, like ostriches, Ostriches, cassowaries and such. Um, That's because of their own lineage that's... Mm. We can trace it back as far as we want. They will eventually have a common ancestor in a dinosaur somewhere, however million years are going to look back. But no, they would have originated from their own line. With the dinosaurs, we get we still get similar things in Australia and, say, South America that look similar enough but also vastly different. Now, were all dinosaurs feathered, though? Because No. There's been a recent thing where, you know, they were brought out as these big scaly lizards... As and then we found about with Jurassic Park, yeah. yeah. And then we found evidence of feathers, and like, and then people suddenly switched. Everything's got to have feathers. No, what I like to be a bit conservative in that. If a animal is found with feather or feather impressions or feathers, that one probably did have feathers. Maybe its relatives did, but you, I like to be conservative. I wouldn't say all of them did. We've seen feathers pop up in theropods, which is you know your typical meat eaters. I'm not sure if there's been any evidence for feathers in sauropods or definitely not ornithopods as far as I'm aware. So ornithopods or ornithicians really, is it's a big group of what you'd consider normally the herbivorous ones. Big examples, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, mm-hmm. the armored ankylosaurs. I'm not familiar with them as much as other groups, but to my knowledge, there's no evidence of feathers in them. It's pretty well restricted to theropods and then only certain ones as well. My understanding was sauropods were herbivores, but then you had these ornithopods where you're saying it was herbivores. Yeah, so So, quick little evolution of dinosaurs. You've got two kind of big groups, the ornithicians, Mm -hmm. what we call the bird hips, nothing to do with birds, (laughs) and the sauricians, the lizard hips, to do with birds. Let me go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's the way that the pelvis sits in the animal. In the ornithicians, they're, they're situated like a bird. In the saurischians, they're situated like a lizard. But eventually, as birds popped out of the theropods, they moved them back 
into the bird orientation. Mm-hmm. So it's just what we call convergent evolution. They're doing the same thing, but from a different lineage. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm following. Yeah. So it's like flight, I guess. Um, what's a good example? Like a bird and a bat. Mm-hmm. Very distantly related, but they both fly. They both develop wings. That's convergent evolution. They've evolved to do a similar thing. But now not everything that has wings flies. No, either. exactly that too. But sometimes they evolve wings and then they don't need to fly anymore and the wings just become vestigial. Maybe they'll lose them in time. I'm not sure. This is a bit of hearsay and speculation. Yeah, I do wonder why things evolved wings at all if they don't fly. Well, usually, I mean, it, let's look at the tyrannosaurs as well. They have those little tiny forelimbs. We don't know what they're for. They probably weren't doing much with them. It was but spe- it's because something very far back had those forelimbs and they've just reduced them over the time as they're probably not using them as much. Is it speculated that the Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, used those tiny arm limbs, as you call them, to possibly hold things as they... They could have done... Look, I'm not familiar with them as much. They could have done any number of things with them. What is interesting, and I can comment on, is last year a big Carcharodontosaur was um, named. It's called Meraxes. Now, Carcharodontosaurs kind of like a big predator from the southern hemisphere they came around a few million years quite a few million years before t-rex and such but they were the big ones of their time they also had small arms um there's another stream called the abelosaurs things like carnotaurus they kind of got like stubbier faces Mm -hmm. also got reduced arms now the thing with these guys is all three of them got really really big starting to push t-rex size levels of big developed large heads and all reduced their arms now, the, th- the way we're looking at it is these things have large heads, strong mm-hmm. teeth, strong jaws. They're probably hunting with their head. The reduction of the forelimb was speculated in this paper that it's probably because they're relying on their head to hunt. They don't need to use the forelimbs as much. Mm. But what they're still doing with their forelimbs, we don't know. That There's there's range of motion in them. They, they're still usable. They're not completely vestigial where they're going to fall off and be useless, but there seems to be some evolutionary you know trend where if they have a large head and if they grow in size they they're going to reduce their arms it's happened three times in the theropod lineage so but we don't really have an understanding why that is the thing is with these animals there's nothing on earth at the moment like mm. them yeah there's no colossal super predator you know the size of a tyrannosaurus so we don't know what they were doing we can't look at something and compare and we have plenty of reptiles, but they're all belly walkers. Yeah, and the the dinosaurs are so far from the reptiles as well. Mm. I mean, the the best we can do is crocs, which are one of the um, latest things to separate out before the dinosaurs arose. And now, where birds. did they come in? Sorry. So they kind of all fit into what we call the archosauromorphs, ancient lizards, and that's kind of including crocs. I could be wrong, so... I'm trying to be careful. I don't want to upset anyone no, in the fine. paleo that's right. field. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it's crocs, bird, uh, sorry, dinosaurs, the flying reptiles, the pterosaurs, marine reptiles. They're all kind of in this ancient group of the lizards. And the crocs separate and evolve out before the dinosaurs rise. So it's just a separate lineage. Oh. So we use, when we try and determine what dinosaurs were doing. So often, they're like a cousin. Yeah. Yeah. Often we use um, crocs because they're the latest one to diverge before the dinosaurs popped up, Mm. and birds because they actually come out of the dinosaur lineage. So if we look at something before them, which has their older condition, and something from birds, which has the newer condition, and we look at what they share in features, sometimes Mm. that's used to replicate or to estimate what a dinosaur was doing. Things like, um, you know, 
just integument, so whether or not they have feathers or the scales or things like that, um, their movement abilities. I mean, there's quite a few studies where they try and test the bite force of some of the big theropods, and they use crocs as well in those studies. You would have to adjust for size and... There's, there's always, th- again, like I said, there's nothing on earth at the moment mm. like these things, which I think to me is part of the mystery and the enjoyment is that you, you're trying to picture a world that doesn't exist and you're trying to picture animals that don't exist anymore. Mm. And you're trying to figure out what they're doing based on just bones. That's so hard. That is so difficult. I mean, we even look at, so paleoanthropologists, they obviously look at humans mm-hmm. and even trying to piece together what they did and that was only to say a million years ago is hard enough but yeah. then you take that to a scale of 200 to 200 and what was it 60 million years ago or something yeah there's just there's so much time and it's so hard to comprehend mm. and there's even you know paleontology is a very broad science dinosaurs are kind of the famous one for it because yeah. of things like Jurassic yeah. Park but you have all this weird marine life in the Cambrian just these strange half the time we don't even know if they're an animal or not mm. just the way that some of them look um, you've got things before the age of the dinosaurs like the Gorgonopsids just these weird synapsid animals they kind of look weirdly between a mammal and a reptile some of them <laughs> you get the dinosaurs you get the birds after the dinosaurs go extinct you get the rise of mammals and we have mammals now that we can look at but there's so many mammals that are extinct that we're still mystified by just because they might have bone structures or size that we can't comprehend why and it it, like i i say easy relatively when we look at like extinct mammals it's a little bit easier because we can compare to things that may be still persisting what happens when we find a lineage that no longer exists like how do we compare yeah and so it's almost like you can't yeah and so things with dinosaurs and then the flying reptiles pterosaurs the marine reptiles they don't have they don't exist anymore. The best we can do with at least the theropods is the birds. We can look at some of their behaviour and estimate what they'd be doing, you know. Basic things like the bobbing of the head. When they walk. The way they walk. Kind of, you know, yeah. Just we do the best we can with what we've got. And often in Australia, the fossils we get aren't as comprehensive or as useful. They, they're useful, they're important, but not as comprehensive as elsewhere in the world. So it can be a bit of a struggle in itself there too. Leading up to this podcast, I was observing birds a lot more tentatively than I normally would on any other day-to-day just because they're the, really the closest thing we have to dinosaurs oh. that are just, you know, outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully, yes. When I was watching them, I noticed that they tend to fly in herds and packs and they tend to be very uh, social within a, a dynamic group. But then if there's like another group of birds, they tend to get very hostile. Do you think dinosaurs were kind of this way at the same time? I mean, that's not restricted to birds. You see animals that form packs. Yeah, Sorry, mammals forming mm. packs and being hostile to other species. Mm. It's just the game of life is to ensure your own survival and ensure your reproduction. And you can only reproduce with members of your species. And so you're going to be benefit from being with your species and passing on your genes and, you know, stopping other species from doing the same, especially if they share a similar niche. If they're both predators and you're both trying to hunt, well, you want to beat out the other predator and survive. It's all over the animal world. Things are hostile to other species. Things are hostile within their own species. 
definitely evidence of you know group behavior in dinosaurs you get massive herds of you know things like triceratops or some of the hadrosaurs um with nesting they obviously lived in groups we have evidence of gregariousness a group behavior in things like like, even the tyrannosaurs and some of the big theropods we you know we guess sometimes that some of the smaller ones probably hunted together if there's evidence of a smaller predator with a large massive herbivore that it probably it definitely couldn't have taken down on its own it could have been scavenging it could have been group behavior and one of them just didn't make it we this it's probably very likely that things grouped together Mm. hunted together made herds you know defended themselves against other animals it does make sense it just annoys me that in movies they always portray the t-rex as this lone wolf kind of and i think to myself would it really have just gone out on its own and hunted that doesn't seem very t-rex has kind of turned into a movie monster yeah in jurassic park i really love it in the original jurassic park because it feels like an animal you know Mm. it's been caged up it's free it's not going out of its way to murder people you know it's just a it's a hungry animal it wants to eat it wants to survive i feel like in some of the newer movies they turned into just psychopath Mm. animals that just yeah again a good example jurassic park 3 the spinosaurus for no reason at all my favorite dinosaur mind you (laughs) great dinosaur it just continually runs the cast down everywhere they go it's there it's mm. like it's got it out for them. Mm. That's kind of that feels more movie monster to me. At times, it also does behave like an animal. You know, they scare it off with fire in the end. Perfectly normal animal behavior. But yeah, T Rex is kind of as it's 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 the dinosaur. It's iconic. Everyone knows T Rex. Most you know, I'd hope most people know T Rex. We've got evidence of it probably hunting in packs. I mean, some of the animals it was living alongside. You look at things like Triceratops or the big Edmontosaurs. They're massive as well. It'd probably benefit you to hunt together. They probably, you know, there's, I'm fairly certain there's evidence that they raised their young or cared for their young. We have pretty good records of T-Rex from baby to adult, like what their skeletons look like. And they look very, very different. They grow very into this just massive animal, but they start with, you know, they're pretty, what we call gracile. They're thin, they're lanky. And eventually they grow into these big colossal predators. We think that they've actually, uh, you know, the, the reason T-Rex is so successful is it's probably occupied every niche in its environment. So, you know, when you look at an environment, there's, you know, the food chain. Things hunt at different levels. Things eat different things. You've got your scavengers. You've got things hunting smaller prey, things hunting larger prey. We think, I have read that T-Rex was thought to be so successful because it probably was able to occupy all of those niches itself. The smaller ones had more elongate faces and we're able to scavenge or hunt smaller prey the big ones eventually bringing down the big herbivores so you know there's probably it's probably very likely that these animals hunted together or were solitary you know you look at tigers they hunt on their own they come together to mate um polar bears polar bears and then you look at other animals that you know like a lion pride one male bunch of females but they're still together Mm. as a group the females hunt together you know there's plenty of evidence of pack hunting and solitary hunting we don't know this is the thing we don't we don't have a t-rex so we're mm. never going to know mm. we can just guess based on the bones do we understand why dinosaurs kept getting so big <sighs> look i'm not terribly familiar with that it could be any number of reasons it could be that the world was warmer I don't know, oxygen levels um just the nutrition we don't know 
they were just able to maintain just these massive sizes. And some of them, it's really hard to comprehend. You look at some of the really big sauropods. Um, I was recently at Queensland Museum. They have the Dinosaurs of Patagonia exhibit, mm-hmm. and they have Patagotitan, which is the largest sauropod known in the world. Is and that the just, one that's like 30 feet? Uh, we, yeah, something to that effect. They're just ridiculously big. You just stand under them, and you wonder how something like that could have stood on land. I mean, you look at an elephant, and they're already impressive. You look at a giraffe, and they're impressive too, but some of these things are just absolutely colossal. It, it doesn't make sense to us because we don't see anything like that on land. I mean, we have the blue whale, but they're rarely spotted, and they're in the ocean. That helps them move around. We just can't comprehend how some of these things got so big and so successful at being so big at the same time. It's a lot of body mass to move around. What surprises me the most is... um. It always seems to be the case that carnivorous animals just tend to be smaller than herbivores. I mean, you take the elephant, the giraffe, and then you got the tiger. I mean, you look at the size difference, and I wonder why that is. Look, again, something I'm not super familiar with, Mm. but part of what we know about dinosaurs is that our fossil record is very, very limited. Mm -hmm. We only get certain environments preserving and even then still it's very very hard for a fossil to preserve I think it's estimated that we have like 0.1 of 0.1% of all known life through fossils there's so much we don't know about who knows if there were herbivores that were just absolutely colossal that T-Rex tried to bring down that Mm. we'll just never see because it wasn't in these environments that preserved there could be any number of reasons why I mean as as far as I'm aware tigers don't hunt things that are terribly larger than themselves Mm lions again to hunt zebras which are slightly bigger i don't think they don't really go after elephants or giraffes or whatever their kind of defense mechanism was getting really big to the point where nothing could hunt them and that's probably what happened in the sauropods as well their defense mechanism was size like when you get something that colossally big how are you going to bring it down Mm. no matter how dangerous you are um something like t-rex probably couldn't tackle alamosaurus the big sauropods from around then it just it doesn't make sense with at least the larger ones when you think about size going back to the tri or the end of the triassic period when the dinosaurs kind of went from like five to ten percent of the population and then they just had this big boom Mm -hmm. their population increased to uh, while they they ruled the world basically yep what happened Again, we're never really going to know. They just somehow managed to be successful. Mm. They would have outcompeted other animals. They just filled every niche. They just spread across the world. Why they're so successful, we're never going to know. How they went extinct, you know, we've got theories, but we're never truly going to have it 100% on the head because we weren't there. Mm-hmm. You're never going to know. They were just, obviously, they did the right things. To have so many lineages and so many successful groups and just spread out through the entire world. They just did all the things right. I wonder if they were a lot like us. I mean, the mammals, we were, well, I should, we were these little rodent things that just sort of like to hide underground, come out, eat when we can, run, hide mm-hmm. underground. I wonder if they were kind of similar in a way of, you know, just staying away from these larger predators and just eating and scavenging when they can and going back into hiding? Well, it's likely something similar. I mean, dinosaurs come up in the Triassic, but before that you had the Permian-Triassic mass extinction, one of the big 
massive mass extinctions mm. in life's history. Now, I know it's a few million years later when the dinosaurs truly popped up, but they probably capitalized on just all this life going extinct and just being able to maneuver in and fill in the niches. We lived in the shadow of the dinosaurs, and when they went extinct, mammals capitalized on that, and they managed to spread throughout the entire world. And look at us now. I mean, there's mammals dominating ecosystems on every continent. Humans, you know, pretty much run the world. We're a mammal lineage, and we were able to come about because the dinosaurs went extinct. So they, you know, they probably outcompeted or filled in niches that were no longer occupied because things went extinct and it just allowed them to disperse and become incredibly successful just you know possibly one of the most successful groups of all time it definitely in the birds and the theropods by extent because the birds came out of the theropods they've been around for the entire age you know theropods for the entire age of the dinosaurs and then the birds persisting onwards that's an incredibly successful lineage for 145 million plus 65 million years mm. A lot of people, when they think of the extinction, they always think of the extinction of the dinosaurs, the last extinction period that we yeah. had. But before that, there was like another four. Yes, there are a few mass extinctions. Um, they're, they're kind of four or five major ones. Um, but there's also extinction events between the ages during the dinosaurs. There's probably extinction events during the Mesozoic as well. Like there's a boundary between the Triassic and the Jurassic. There's a boundary between the Jurassic and the Cretaceous where the lineages are changing and evolving. There's probably not as major extinction events, but there's still extinction events occurring. You see lineages drop off completely, like the Carcharodontosaurs. They persist, I think, I always get it wrong, but they persist to a certain stage and then they just drop off. We don't see them anymore. It could be a fossil record thing. There is also a um, an anoxic event, so a lack of oxygen, um, and that, that seems to be when they went extinct. So something in the environment changed and... They just couldn't take it anymore. And then new groups evolved and occupied their place. And that was the extinction event before the dinosaurs, right? There was some That was sort during of, the age. That was I during mean, the age. There are plenty of extinction events. There's the Permian Triassic, which I think is thought to be one of the worst, if not the worst. Mm. You know, Cretaceous Paleogene or KT, as we call it. That's the big one that everyone knows because, well, that let us come into dominance in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, there are several. And there's always things going extinct it's just unfortunately now at a much rapid rate because it's not a natural process anymore it's a it's an anthropogenic process humans are facilitating the extinction of life and it, it just has colossal impacts on the environment um it, it, it leads to ecosystem collapse um you know loss of life it's just it, the effects are just rippling and i guess in part as a paleontologist you gain an appreciation for it in that you're actively observing um, the success and the extinction of life. We're seeing these animals that were just around for so long and then drop off because of a massive, massive event or, you know, they just couldn't survive anymore. Now it's because, you know, they're being forced out of their environments or, you know, being hunted to extinction. It's just, it's incredible to see how rapidly it's happening in our lifetime. And it's kind of concerning for the future too. I mean... It's it's something else. Yeah, I think when we think of extinctions, well, even the rhinos, uh, what type, uh, type of rhino went extinct pretty recently. And since mm. humans have been alive, a lot of animals have went extinct. And we always think to ourselves, oh, well, how did this happen? But it, it's because of us. Yeah. I mean, one thing causes another thing's extinction. It's pretty much 
and maybe that's what happened. What's that dinosaur you said when it's the Kakara dinosaurs? Yeah, sorry, that's a mouthful. Uh, they're they're a mouthful. <laughs> they're not as they're not as easy to say as Tyrannosaurus, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, perhaps it was just as simple as they got hunted. They just weren't the dominant species of their time, and that's just all it was. Yeah, there's there, there could be any number of reasons. Again, any anything we propose as a paleontologist, as a scientist generally, is a hypothesis. It's a it's a pretty rigid theory. We have supporting evidence, but it's never proof mm. because something may come along and change that. As far as I'm aware with the Carcharodontosaurus, there's an anoxic event and it does something to the environment that they can't handle. Mm. Again, we're limited in the fossil record. We're limited in environments we know about. They may have persisted elsewhere. We just don't see them in the fossil deposits we have. We're incredibly limited by where we can find fossils and what age that is. Something I read recently and I found it really fascinating was how dinosaurs breathed. And when they breathe, they have like these sacs inside their bodies. And it kind of, instead of like us, where we breathe into our lungs and sort of breathe out, when they breathed in, it kind of went through all these uh, different sacs. And they, this was just a hypothesis that maybe this could have also helped them with their growth in size as well. I'm not too sure if it's 100% correct. As you said, everything's just a theory. Yeah, so. the thing with things like air sacs, mm. they don't preserve. Mm. All we get preserved is bone most of the time. Mm. So it, often it's a bit of speculation. Um, a lot of dinosaur bones are pneumatic, so hollow, air-filled. You know, They could have air sacs like birds do because birds got it from somewhere. There could be any number of reasons that contributed to it. Again, it's often a lot of those kind of... Papers in paleontology are hypothesizing based on, you know, what we can tell from the fossils and what modern analogs like birds and crocs might be doing. Mm. But it's it's never going to be proof. Is the whole thing about the colors of the feathers that we can see now, is that just a theory? So when we look at, when we have these feather fossils and we can sort of, we look at the what is it? I think they call it the melanin mm-hmm. of it. We can say we can know the color by looking at that, but I'm not. Can we yeah, really? I'm. I'm not super familiar with that. That's a whole nother field. Um, mm. Like my experience is mainly describing fossils. Mm-hmm. We take a fossil, we look at all the features, we compare it to everything we can. Um, there's so many streams in paleontology that you can take. I'm not super familiar with coloration in feathers mm. um, I probably need to do a bit more reading on it because we have evidence of feathers here in Victoria mm. I'm not sure how much you can do with it new techniques might develop new mm. processes might develop but just knowing that they had feathers based on feather impressions is impressive for me as it is already mm. I mean there's such a a delicate thing to preserve if you can get evidence of them it's incredible on its own if they can get colour out of it great um, again, I don't know how accurate it will be. I wonder if dinosaurs use their feathers similarly to birds. So it's speculated that birds use their feathers as like a mating. You know, you see them fluff their feathers up to look larger against prey. Mm-hmm. You see them ruffle their feathers to a sign of attract a mate. Is it hypothesized dinosaurs may have done this same thing? As yeah. That's why I say hypothesized. No, of yeah. course. There's any number of reasons. I mean, mm. they use feathers for everything, probably climatic control in themselves mating displays territorial displays feathers are probably part of flight it's likely they did similar things Mm. there's no reason to say they didn't no reason to say they did 
so we can just the best we can do is form a decent theory about why they may have done something it is likely that yeah maybe some of the feathered dromaeosaurs were using it as mating displays maybe it was threat displays maybe it was camouflage uh, camouflage they could have lived in colder environments and used it for insulation there's any number of reasons they could have been using them for but probably yeah i mean the birds evolved from them so they've probably maintained behaviors or you know evolutionary trends when you you've obviously been to a lot more museums than i have i wish (laughs) i haven't been to enough i went to the melbourne museum pretty recently i was just kind of looking at the dinosaurs and i've never really thought of this until now but it's weird how i didn't really think of it till now and i I don't get how other people don't think of it or maybe they do and I'm just being ignorant when I was looking at it I thought to myself this I'm looking at a sounds weird but I'm looking at a dead thing right now like yeah. I'm looking at something that's dead and we've put it on display like it's bones and all that sort of jargon it's it's just weird like after I had that thought and I was staring at it it's just weird to me if just going to a place to look at something from over 200 million years ago that's dead and we've yeah. just put it in this building yeah it's, it's so weird it is it's for myself i yeah i'm at the museum often yeah i went recently with um my partner and her nieces and mm. sister and you know i i look at it i go every time and the replicas on dinosaur walk are nice but recently with the triceratops at melbourne museum it's a whole other thing i mean that's 89% complete. It's almost the full thing. Mm-hmm. And you just go stand in front of it. And every time I go look at it, you're just awestruck. You're like, that was an animal. That was wandering around 66, 67 million years ago. That existed. And it, it it's just awe-inspiring to look at it. And you're like, I get what you mean. It's like, yeah, you know, we're just parading around the bones yeah. of something long dead. Imagine in... 66 million years they're just parading around human bones in a, well that was in my a, thought I mean museum. imagine if we think about it and someone took our bones just 100 million years from now and they put them in a museum and they were like oh look here's these humans that were alive maybe it's AI robots that are doing it yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah I mean it's part of the mystery of you know this thing is it's such a long time it's so difficult to comprehend we live 80, 90, 100 year lives. How do you comprehend 100 million years? It just, you, you, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. And so I think it's part of a, it's a wonder mm. having these things in, observing them. It's like that existed so long out of my comprehension, but it existed. It was an animal. Well, we can really only comprehend our own lifetimes. I yeah. mean, if we even tried to comprehend our great grandfather's lifetime, we probably couldn't. Oh, it's a whole different world. Yeah. I mean, there's that really nice analogy. Um, if you stretched out the history of life on a football field, humanity would be the last blade of grass on the other end. That's how long I've we've never been actually around. heard that. Yeah. It's, wow. It's, it's a good way to comprehend when you can visualize a footy field. You're like, I get that. You know how big a footy field is, and then you can comprehend how big a blade of grass is. That kind of puts into perspective how long we've been on this earth compared mm. to everything else. I forget the actual you know, distance it gives the dinosaurs, but for all the history of life, it's not that long. Jeez. Well, what dinosaurs, if you put it in, if you wanted to do it mathematically, if 
are we saying Homo sapiens of the hundred? Yeah, uh, like the blade of grass. Like oh, okay. Homo sapiens. Okay. Is the of grass. All right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah, not yeah. the not yeah. the entire lineage of humanity. Yeah, that's like, what Homo I was sapiens thinking. is the final blade of grass. Yeah. Like we have been around for so little. Mm. We've done a lot. It's impressive how much we've done. Mm. But in the grand scheme of things, we've been on here for such a tiny, tiny fraction of time. What annoys me the most, I think, is how important we put ourselves on the grand scale of things. Like it, yeah. it's typical human. I find it's a, it's, it's a human thing, but it's also it's also part of how we've come to be so successful. I think. Yeah. Oh no, not in that. I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, all this is just for us." You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's man, a meteor could be screaming towards this way, and it doesn't care if you think this yeah. is all for you. Yeah, it's. <laughs> the the two things that make you feel really really small is a comprehension of time, yeah, and the comprehension of space. Mm. I mean, yeah, I use the analogy for the history of life on Earth, but then try and think of yourself on this planet in the galaxy we know, like absolutely minuscule. It makes you feel really really small. Mm. In the grand scheme of things, yeah, a hundred years probably doesn't matter. Mm. 99% of people are probably never going to be remembered in the way that, you know, we remember famous figures like Charles Darwin, you know, the Roman emperors. It, it just seems minuscule, but I, I get what you mean. Mm. People on this planet feel like they're the most important thing mm. at times. I saw a paper recently. It was on a dinosaur larynx. Yep, the ankylosaur larynx. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it does make sense because birds chirp, but mm-hmm. uh, crocodiles hiss, I think. Yep. Now, when I think of Jurassic Park, I think of this huge Tyrannosaurus Rex, as you said, bowling through, uh, through the gate and it just lets out this massive roar. Now, mm-hmm. that is also a hypothesis, right? Yeah. They're just this big dinosaur letting out a big roar. That's maybe how they sounded. Uh, yeah, we're never going to know. I mean, yes, the ankylosaur larynx is really in- incredible and really important. We know that at least that group probably had larynxes. Whether they all did, we don't know. Probably they did. We're never going to know what it sounded like. Mm. Um, again, drawing back to Jurassic Park 3, I absolutely love the the resonating chamber of the velociraptor. There's that little bone oh, that yeah, yeah. blows into and it makes the raptor noises. Was that the hyoid? No, it's it's a it's a made up structure. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. For the movie, yeah. Things like that don't exist. Mm. It's it, just having the larynx. You can't just pick up this ankylosaur and start blowing in it. Yeah. Blow into it and it'll make <laughs> ankylosaur noises. We're never gonna know. I think the most recent hypothesis hypothesis for at least T Rex is like a low rumbling noise. Probably didn't have a massive roar or bellow like it does in the movie. Mm. It may have. It may have used that territorially, but you know. If you're trying to hunt something, you don't want to burst out of the forest screaming so that no, you run away. Uh, no. It um, doesn't sound very evolutionary advantageous. No. Again, it's... Basically telling everyone you're there. It's just the, it's a game of life. You're just trying to eat, you're trying to survive, you're trying to reproduce. Mm. You're going to do the things that benefit that. Mm. Um, yeah, they probably made sound. We're never going to know what those sounds were. We can only hope to guess what they sounded like. And again, it's, it's an ancient world. I mean the age of the dinosaurs is so different to us as anything else uh, because it's a world that no longer exists. We're separated by 65 million years. The continents were in a different way. It was a warmer world. It, it doesn't exist anymore. It's I mean, it's the same planet, but it's mm. so it's vastly changed. changed yeah. that it's just an alien world to us. I couldn't imagine being a dinosaur and trying to hunt because when I think of 
a predator hunting let's just go back to the tiger and the lion for a sec you see them they crouch down and beneath the weeds and stuff and they kind of blend in you can't see them the weeds are only like you know knee yeah. maybe waist height so yeah I, I get it you know it's hard to see them yeah Tyrannosaurus Rex what are you crouching well, behind <laughs> so there's a really good documentary I get my uh, my wife pings me on calling it a documentary because she considers a documentary when you're filming actual things mm. but there's a really good dinosaur or prehistoric documentary that came out on Apple TV this year and last year it's called Prehistoric Planet um, some really well renowned paleontologists consult on it and it's of course narrated by David Attenborough and they I use haven't this, watched that I've got to watch it's that it's incredible what's it called? Prehistoric Planet. Prehistoric Planet. Is that on There's Netflix? two seasons. Apple TV. Apple TV. Okay. Yeah. There's two seasons, five episodes each, but I swear they're working magic. Like the CGI in that is you'd think it's a real animal in front of you. Um, and a lot of it is speculative, but it seems to make sense. E.g. there's a scene in season two with T-Rex. Um, they're talking about its enlarged eye sockets, probably giving it a larger eye and better eyesight. And then the speculation comes in that it probably had better vision at night relative to something with a smaller eye. And so you've got these two T-Rexes that set up an ambush hunt at night against a couple of hadrosaurs. And it's one bursts out and scares them off. And as they scatter, the other T-Rex comes out from behind a tree and brings it down. Uh, that brings back the whole hunting in pack. Yeah. There's another one with the velocity... Sorry, spoilers for people who haven't seen Prehistoric Planet. Not that it's, you know... Spoiler alert. A story-based um, show. Even though it was already told. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's one with velociraptors where they're chasing up this small ornithopod up this cliff. There's another one raiding, waiting around a bend. It turns the bend and it kicks it off. The poor animal falls however far down, dies, and they get a free meal. And that was a T-Rex. No, these are velociraptors. Oh, velociraptors. Yeah. There's There's... They probably pack hunted. The, a, the way they make it up in the show is speculative, but it, it's convincing. There's a scene in, I'm pretty sure it's Jurassic Park, where it's really similar. You've got a guy with a shotgun, and you see the Velociraptor kind of just standing there, Clever and then girl. out of nowhere, you just yeah. see this dinosaur right here. Yeah. <laughs> they probably set ambushes. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be that intelligent to set an ambush or a trap. If you're just hunting, if you're quite good at hunting, and I mean, a lot of the dinosaurs were quite good at hunting. They would have managed had to, to do been. it for 145 million years. They mm. had to get pretty good at it mm. because evolution is an arms race. Mm. If you're going to get good at hunting, things are going to get good at defending themselves and you've got to get better and better. This brings me back to the conversation. Now, being that smart to hunt, this brings me back to the conversation we are having before we started the podcast. I wanted to bring it up again, <laughs> which was the guy... Dale Russell talking about dinosaurs potentially being being as smart as humans. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I have my own thoughts. I think it's incredibly look, my thoughts are this. Dinosaurs had this earth for, as you said, hundred and forty five million years. If they were gonna make an evolutionary change into being more intelligent, it would have happened. It would have happened. Yeah. I think, as with everything I've said today, we're never going to know. Yeah, yeah. They could yeah. have been, you know. They may have been able to comprehend things mm. we're able to. I mean, crows are incredibly intelligent. You see them um, having, I think it's the average intelligence of like a three-year-old child, something like that. That's phenomenal for a bird. You don't yeah, think birds are that very smart. Much. But who's to say they didn't? Mm. Again, the thing is we're never going to know. Mm. And we're only looking at the dinosaurs and the fossils that we actually have preserved. There might have been incredibly smart dinosaurs that just didn't preserve. 
Well, it makes me wonder if they use tools as well, because you see videos of crows and other birds using tools. So yeah. this guy, it's obviously a trained bird. He puts a, a treat inside this tube uh, for this bird. It's like in the center. Mm-hmm. And then he'll tell it to go and get it. It'll pick up a stick and actually use the stick to push at the other end of the tube yeah. so it falls out that side. So Yeah, look. Again, we're never going to know. Advanced mm. tools may have preserved alongside them. We don't see any advanced tools, so I, I don't expect and that they were that intelligent. I mean, they still their bone structure and the way they preserve. I mean, it still looks like they're just animal, mm. not a, a self-aware species like humanity. I don't think they were, at least for the ones we know of. You know, picking up a stick to help you with something is intelligent, but you know, they may have. Mm. Again, at the end of the day, we're never going to know. That's part of what I love about it is you're never going to know. And I like to speculate within reason. Does it bother you too? Bother me that we're never going to know? Yeah. No, I think it's part of the fun. Um, (laughs) It bothers me so much. Part of the draw is we're never going to know. So, but it's it's trying to build a story with what we do know. I think that's part of the fun for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, it's again, it's a whole other world. It's animals that no longer exist what they were doing, why they were so successful. We we try our best to figure it out with just the skeleton. Mm. It's uh, And even at that, it's rare for a skeleton that's more than 75% complete. Mm. So at times you're working with parts of an animal. Mm. I mean, there are several dinosaur species that are known from one bone. Happens in Australia. From one bone? One bone, yeah. Um, we have... How would you, how would you know? Well... <laughs> Size of I mean, the bone would be a giveaway. There's, there's plenty of differentiation. There's size. There's um, differentiation in the bone structure. There's plenty of factors. But the thing with naming a dinosaur off one bone is that if you find new bones in that same area, but it's not the same bone, how do you know it's a different animal? Mm. E.g., um, I don't know. Let's say you find a femur upper leg bone, mm-hmm. and you name a species. And, you know, it's a theropod. It's got the classic hollow bones. It's long. It's built for speed. Okay, you've got your species. And then you go back to the same site or relatively nearby, same age site, and you find, let's say, a humerus, which is an upper arm bone or forelimb. It's a theropod. It's around the same size. How do you know it's not the same species? You can't tell because you don't have those overlapping bones. So... You're talking about finding a femur and then mm-hmm. saying, okay, it's a theropod, looks like it's built for speed. Mm-hmm. When I think of something that's built for speed, personally, I'd be looking more towards the ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you might be able to kind of tell if it was like a, like, and the foot shape. How yeah. would you tell that off a femur? Well, there's plenty of ways to tell. I mean, length can be part of it. We, we can kind of tell based on gracility, so how slender a bone is. If it's something that's real big and chunky, it's probably not moving very fast. If it's hollow, elongate, it's probably got longer legs, might be built for speed. We see that in a few theropods. And yeah, ankles are quite great, um, and especially like the tibia bone. We have a feature called the ascending process of the astragalus. So the astragalus is kind of part of the ankle in a theropod that articulates with the tibia, and it has this process that goes up and attaches to the um, the front of the tibia. That variation in that ascending process, I think, can be used to help infer if something was built for speed or if it's a bit more conservative. Um, there's just there's so many minuscule, minute features on these bones that can tell you incredible stories about these animals. Mm. 
and yeah I think it's part of the mystery part of the fun mm. we've talked or you've said a lot about hollow bones mm-hmm. now the term hollow is that literal hollow kind of hollowed out like if you've ever seen a bird bone no uh, oh, I mean on the road but I'm not going to yeah. walk up to it and be like you know hey nah, look, well yeah. even <laughs> eat a chicken or something oh it's yeah pretty okay. lightweight yeah hollow yeah it, yeah you got the wishbone with the clavicle when i say hollow it's essentially a thin walled bone mm-hmm. and a lot of airspace in the middle that's the theropod trait um they have hollow bones and the birds inherited that from them we think that may have contributed in part to how they were able to achieve big size is because their bones weren't as dense as some of the other animals so you know it that was a reduction in weight you know it's a possibility now, is it um, distinctive for theropods to have hollow bones? Yeah. So the biggest dinosaurs were sauropods. So mm-hmm. if we're talking about, okay, whoever has the hollow bones kind of gets the biggest size, you kind of well, see where I'm going yeah, with this. No, yeah. not ne- hollow bones doesn't necessarily mean the biggest size, but, mm. you know, they did get big, like T-Rex and mm. such are quite large animals. A funny thing with sauropods is some of their bones seem... Yeah, a little bit hollowed out, not massively, but to a degree that may have helped them achieve massive size. They also, one key feature in sauropods is they flatten the femur. Mm. So in theropods and other groups, the femur is kind of rounded at the shaft. In sauropods, it's kind of this big flat slab. We think that's a weight bearing mechanic. So they put more weight on the back legs, but the bones are still somewhat hollow in the middle. So they're still able to, they're not, incredibly dense and they allow the animal to put on more weight so but you also need to support yeah you know you need that structural support especially for, for something that's animal. 30 foot yeah, yeah jesus christ yeah so is there a potentiality that these giant sauropods who also have somewhat hollow bones could have also been carnivorous we i don't think there's been evidence of sauropods um mm-hmm. being carnivorous they have weird-looking pointy teeth. Mm. Uh, I have quite a few people just ask me, why do they have those teeth if they're herbivorous? You know? Yeah, because it's look- probably an adaption for the plants they had in that time. Mm. You know, things will yeah, adapt and evolve yeah. in a certain way mm. to benefit their environment. One thing to me is that if you're going to be carnivorous at that size, how much have you got to eat? Yeah, well, that's true you as know, well. Plant life is much more readily available well, then- than meat. And also at that size, how do you hunt? I suppose there could have been omnivores, possibility. There's plenty of, you know, what we consider a herbivore mm. that exhibit omnivory. I mean, really weird, but I've seen videos of horses eating baby chicks or deers eating, you know, meat or something. It, things are going to take a meal. Mm. If you're hungry, you're going to eat. I don't think the traditional lines between herbivory and carnivory mm. are as, you know, defined as we used to think. I think there's probably a bit of omnivory in most things. Well, even chimps, they eat monkeys. There's yeah. a uh, documentary on Netflix at the moment called uh, Chimp Empire. Yep. You've, I don't know if you've I've heard it. of it. It's really good. And I actually had no idea that chimps ate monkeys. Yeah. It's kind of like us eating us. It's, yeah. it's, it's really, it's weird. I mean, kind right, of. I, th- I mean, there, there is, again, there's a, a decent amount of separation between mm. them, but I get what you mean. It's yeah. a related yeah. species. Yeah. In nature, I mean, I think it's a bit of human empathy. In nature, things don't really care. It's, again, like like I've drawn back to a few times, it's survive, eat, reproduce. Mm. You want to eat, you got to eat. 
and if, you were if part of it is hunting a monkey mm. as a chimp that's it's an if it's an easy meal you're going to take it and i get what you're saying how they had flat teeth too because even um we have well sauropods have weirdly sharp teeth well, not sharp but kind of pointed mm. structural teeth mm. um it looks like predatory teeth but they're not they're adapted for eating plants mm. they're just odd and again this is just from the sauropods with teeth that we know of who knows why it might be an adaption for their plants maybe they're shearing leaves off of trees it's all hypothesis have we ever found like a dental record of a dinosaur where we can use some sort of grime or some sort of decay that's been within their teeth and see if it was meat or vegetation or uh, that's another stream i'm not terribly familiar mm. with i don't know if it's been done but often just tooth structure lets you see um so in a lot of the theropods they have these recurved teeth mm. with serrations for shredding meat in some of the herbivorous ones they have what looks like kind of molar structures i mean i don't think technically they're molars i have to be very careful my uh my main supervisor al is very specialized in teeth so if i use the <laughs> wrong terminology i won't i won't see the end of the the week but they just have structures just don't let him listen to this yeah no <laughs> they, they don't have structures adapted for eating for shearing you know mm. tearing meat or eating meat um they have structures that look like they're adapted for chewing plants and so the sauropods, you know, the way their teeth are, it looks like it's adapted for shearing plant life mm-hmm. off really tall trees. Because even we, we have obviously, as you said, we've got molars at the back, but mm-hmm. then we have these canines at the front. So that yep. makes me think if they were potentially omnivores as well, but as you said, we're never really going to know. Exactly. It's all, we, we do the best we can with our record. Often with some of the theropods, we get lucky, really lucky at times where you see bite marks in other bones of, you know, what we'd anticipate to be their prey. And, you know, sometimes you get really, really lucky and things like um, dueling dinosaurs. It's a T-Rex and a, I think a Triceratops locked in combat. That's cool. Obviously I hunting saw it. that. That's cool. Yeah, that it's was obviously really cool. hunting it. Yeah. Um, we can see direct evidence mm. of predation, but it's such a rare thing that we can only ever guess. We can only have our, you know, hypothesize based on the evidence we have. Mm-hmm. They may have, they may have been omnivorous. We have some pretty good evidence though that things like T. Rex were hunting Triceratops and Edmontosaurus in its environments. We see these herbivorous animals with bite marks that have healed or not healed because they've been killed by a big predator. We see even between Tyrannosaurus um, competition, or if they're hunting each other, we don't know. They're doing something, but they've got bite marks from each other. They're, de- they're definitely doing something with them. Mm. And would you tell those bite marks just based off crushed bone? There's a variety of ways. I mean, there can be kind of, I guess, little cuts through bone that is where a, bone, a tooth is grinded grinded against the bone. Sometimes you get crushing. A big feature in the Tyrannosaurus is they crushed with their skulls. They just had an incredible bite force and they'd crush bone. Mm. Some of them are puncture wounds. There's plenty of different ways and i recently found out that not all dinosaurs chewed either they just kind of bit well yeah some things that just have strange adaptions i mean sometimes it might just be biting crushing and swallowing sometimes it might be ripping off chunks of flesh at a time Mm. again we're never gonna know because we're not actively observing them consume a carcass i was kind of wondering how do you know that i mean 
did the dinosaur tell you that? <laughs> I mean, often, yeah, often things like that. I'm not familiar with this yeah. paper or this theory, but often those come about by observing crocs and mm. birds, you know, the oldest relative and the youngest relative that mm. are still existing. And if you see similar behavior across the two, we can kind of infer what the dinosaurs may have been doing. But we have to be careful with that because they've also evolved for yeah. so long distinctly. I can't remember the exact age of the croc lineage, but they are incredibly distinct from dinosaurs. And the bird lineage is somewhere, I think, in the Jurassic. That's wow. so long. And then after the dinosaurs went extinct, they've also continued to evolve for another 65 million years. So birds are way years. older than crocodiles. Not older than crocs. No, no. Crocs oh, go further back than okay. the dinosaurs. Yeah. Sorry. Um, before yeah, the age of mm. dinosaurs and the crocs. But yeah, birds evolve wherever they pop up. And then after the extinction of the dinosaurs, they continue to evolve for 65 million years in a different world. That's a lot of time to evolve new structures, new behaviours. We're never really going to be able to use them as the definitive answer for what a dinosaur was doing. Now, not all di- during the extinction of the dinosaurs, not all dinosaurs died straight away. Obviously, there was, as we speculate, we, this planet tends to have seasons so i do wonder if the dinosaurs that let's just say it was a very cold time they were hibernating possibly those were the ones that survived due to the climate being different on the other side if that makes sense i think so the leading theory for their extinction at the moment is obviously the big meteor impact Mm -hmm. um at chicxulub in mexico obviously so the 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 way it goes is the meteor impacts i think everything within 100 kilometers radius was instantly vaporized or volcanoes no just the impact and the shock wave from mm. this media has just you know, created massive tsunamis disrupted the t- you know the earth it's kicked up all this soil into the atmosphere that's blocked out light killed the plant life yeah there are theories that maybe on the other side of the planet the effects took a little bit longer but we don't see any dinosaurs persisting after the cretaceous you know that that mass extinction that boundary <laughs> A hundred years is difficult to comprehend in, you know, the the rock that we look at for fossils. Mm. I mean, some of the best ones, some of the best deposits of fossils, we've knocked down to a relative age of two million years. That's still a lot of time. That's, yeah, still a lot of time. Two million years is a long time. Mm. Some of the stuff I work with um, down on the coastline, I think we've got one down to 121 to 118 million years. That's still 3.1 121.4. That's still 3.4 million years. We're not. You're not going to see the intricacies of a hundred no. years in that. You're gonna. We're gonna work with. Okay, this thing is aged somewhere between this and this massive range of time. Um, but you know, it may have taken a hundred, two hundred, a thousand years for them to completely die out. But they do not persist beyond that boundary. We don't see them in the new age. I don't think it was a hibernation thing. Um, the world was much warmer back in the Cretaceous. I, I think it's just a devastating event wiped them out. The media seems like the safest bet, and then whatever cascading effects it had, tsunamis, blotting out the sun, that caused them to eventually all die out. But again, we'll never know complete, the complete story. You do have to wonder how anything at all survived, even mammals. Yeah. I mean, it's, as you said, floods. I heard it did... Uh, the impact of the meteor also set off volcanoes as well, so mm-hmm. spewing ash into the sky. And there's probably so many cascading effects. So I do, so much vegetation, or I'd say most, would have been lost. So I wonder how anything at all survived. It boggles my mind. So we think it's a size thing. 
small birds and small mammals could actually burrow, hide, scavenge, and but hide survive. where? I mean, burrows um, underground in the carcasses of dinosaurs. So the actual meteor impact would have devastated so much around it. But this, mm. the world's a big place. On the other side of the planet, the effects would have been felt a lot later on. Just because the big dinosaurs are dying out doesn't mean everything else is going to die out. Mm. We think part of why the dinosaurs went extinct with this extinction event is their size. They just they're so big. You know, if there's, I think one of the the theories is the meteor impacts it creates all this soil and just blots out the sunlight in the atmosphere, which means the plant life can't get sunlight, starts to die off. If there's no plants, the herbivores can't eat, and they start to die off, and then the carnivores eventually. You know, at their size too, they're going to be needing to consume so much food to survive. So at a larger size, they're going to die. Things that are smaller don't need to eat as much. And so if you're a small rodent-sized mammal... Energy consumption. Yeah. yeah. You can just hide, wait it out during the day, go scavenge some food, and eventually, you know, the world will reset and begin to, you know, become, you know, welcoming to life. And that's when you begin to spread out and evolve and change into other things. So, I mean, life has come incredibly close to complete extinction so many times. But it, it, I, I had to sneak it in. I love the mm. line, life finds a way. <laughs> I mean, it, it does. It, it is incredibly stubborn life. It always finds a way to adapt Shout and Shout out to Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> love, I'll absolutely love it. Uh, like I said, that movie has too much influence on my life. But life is incredibly good at surviving. Just because a lot of things die out doesn't mean other things will. Mm. And I mean, yeah, humans may be pushing things to extinction. Maybe we'll push ourselves to extinction. That doesn't necessarily mean complete extinction unless someone is stupid enough to press the big red button and the nukes fly off. But even then, there may be microscopic life that we can't comprehend mm. that will eventually evolve over millions of years and continue to survive. And the reptiles might take over again. And we might get a second <laughs> age of dinosaurs. Birds might think, let's do that again. Let's go backwards and yeah, that, become dinosaurs yeah, again. That was a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's... Life's weird. Look, I personally don't think it's going to be that big red button scenario. I do think it's going to be this technology thing. It's going to take over us. I think we're going into a time where we think we're being progressive, but we're really not. Mm-hmm. I think we're moving away from what it means to be human. I just think that we're, we think we need things that we don't actually need. I don't personally. I don't even understand social media. I mean, I get of staying connected, but aren't text messages and phone calls enough? Mm. Do you really need a platform where you can tell everyone your day-to-day? Do you really need it? And then this thing that Elon Musk is talking about, having a chip in your head that's going to make it easier to access internet. Do you really need that? You've got the internet in your pocket right now. Um, I think unlike dinosaurs, we're going to push our own extinction. See, I believe that humanity is so successful because we're a migratory species. Mm. We've managed to spread throughout the entire world. We live in hospital environments. I mean, people can survive in Antarctica to do study. That's an incredibly hostile environment. Very. I honestly think we're either going to push out into the stars and spread out through the galaxy, or we're going to die on Earth. And, you know... It's just because we are overpopulating. We're, like you said, we are stagnating. I mean, there's so much reliance on technology nowadays. It's great. I mean, I have a small device Mm. in my pocket where I can access all of humanity's knowledge, all collective knowledge. 
I can just open it up and start looking at a random topic. It's imagine telling that to someone a hundred years ago. Yeah, it's incredible. They'll probably hang you for witchery. I got to say, pretty much, it's incredible. <laughs> but you know, we're not really doing anything. We're working. We're just we're existing at the moment. We're working nine to fives, trying to provide for a family, and that's even getting hard too. I mean, the way inflation and that's going, it's getting pretty bleak. I honestly think, yeah, humanity is either going to spread out into space. We're going to call it, you know, that sci-fi dream from so many movies and video games. We're going to colonize, we're going to spread out, meet other species, or maybe there are no other species and we are the dominant species in the galaxy. Who's to know? I feel like our destiny is either up in the stars or we die on Earth. There are so many tangents. I could go along from that. That's what, what I mean. It's, that's not what I'm here yeah, for. Yeah, I'm here yeah. as paleontologist. Well, one of those tangents is, have you heard the idea that if you go out far enough into space and look back at Earth, you could see dinosaurs because... Yeah, like yeah. the concept of light year travel. Yeah. I wouldn't even know to begin how you get far enough away in time. Look, I, mathematically, I would not have a clue. I think it's more about being somewhere that's 65 million light years away right now, not being able to get there. Well, you know what? We've... What's the uh, what's the hypothesis? You know, if, if there's so many aliens out there, then where are they kind of thing? I, I can't remember who said that. There's a... Oh, I wish I could remember. But anyway, let's just say there are, but they're so far away that when they do look at this planet, that's what they see. Yeah, it's kind that's of like, a possibility. It's kind of why would they want to come? Yeah, that's a possibility. Another one is I quite like the anthill analogy. You, you know, think of yourself and think of an anthill. You look down at an anthill, it's like, you know, it's just this colony of insects. What are they doing? I, I don't need to try and communicate with them. I'm so far above their comprehension. Unless you're an entomologist. Unless you're an entomologist. <laughs> Nothing against entomologists. But it's like, you know, the, the average human isn't, or, you know, a human government isn't thinking, hey, let's go contact ants. Let's figure no. out what ants are doing. Let's no. bring ants into the fold. Mm. What if, you know, there might just be alien races that are just so far advanced behind our comprehension that we look like we're still in the Stone Ages. Why would they bother? There's just plenty of reasons. Yeah. Again, this is all just fun speculation on my behalf. Mm paleontology doesn't tell us anything yeah, about no, this no it doesn't it's, it's just you know how do we comprehend but even still yeah what if there is an advanced civilization 65 million years away and they look at earth and they see a meteor impact and the extinction of the dinosaurs like oh well that planet's done mm. let's not bother boy would you have so many questions for him i bet <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can only just imagine again i love the mystery but sometimes it is like what could you know what could you know if you were far enough away? Yeah, if if that is a real thing. Mm. Again, that's just a theory, looking away from 65 million years. What would you see? What would you know? Or if you could eventually, you know, if time travel's a thing, what could you find out? Would it spoil it for you? Mm. I think that's part of why I like the mystery too, is what if I'm disappointed? What if someone invents time travel and I go back and, yeah, they are just big chickens? I mean, cool, but not what I wanted. I wanted a big kind of what you see in Jurassic Park, I guess. Yeah, and not just big feathered chickens. <laughs> no, I mean, feathers can look incredibly intimidating. Look at a cassowary. Yeah. I think those mm. things terrify me. Like I respect them. Um, they can look terrifying. But what if it's not what you want it to be? It probably, again, we're never going to know. And I think not knowing is part of the fun for me. It's what's so appealing about it. It's just imagining an animal that could achieve that size and be so successful and be a predator. 
the mystery of paleontology. Well, look, I think we'll leave it there. I think we've covered a lot of ground and thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's it, been it, great. It, it does mean a lot. I wish, look, I wish I could know more about paleontology, but it even seems that paleontologists wish they knew more about paleontology too because there's it's so just, many questions that just can't be answered. There's so much and I'm so new to it. Mm. And, you know, I'm specialized in theropods from the Cretaceous of Victoria mm. and I'm still relatively new to that myself. Yeah. That's, you know... A 10 million, 10 million year block in 145 million years of dinosaurs that's 65 million years extinct and we only have this small time frame to work with and I'm still trying to learn it there's so much literature out there dinosaur paleontology has been going on for hundreds of years mm. there's so much out there so much has changed and evolved and I, I, I can't claim to know it all I can only claim to know a small fraction and even then I have a small grasp on that because I'm still trying to absorb and learn everything so I try to be careful when I talk on things like this because I don't want to say something wrong. Mm. And then people, you know, it's a bit of that imposter syndrome as every scientist gets. I don't want to say something wrong and they're like, yeah, he's, we don't worry about him anymore because he thought this wrong. You know, mm. everything I say is to the best of my knowledge and either I haven't read properly or I haven't read the right thing to improve that. So it's, it's just an adapting and changing science and it's just so incredibly exciting to be a part of. Thank you, Jake. Thank you very much. Thank you.